You're listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 153. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with mental skills coach Fran Pizzarolo to discuss his 40-year career and intimate stories when he worked with the world champion New York Yankees. Fran shares the do's and don'ts on gaining confidence and focus. He also breaks down his research efforts on the Big C Creativity Model and how it can elevate one's performance. Are you ready to raise your game? 2021 is the year to increase your performance on and off the field. The Athlete's Edge Journal was designed to cultivate self-confidence and mental resilience through the power of sports psychology. Whether you are a professional athlete, a former college athlete, or have aspirations of greatness in the future, this journal is for you. Visit winthementalgame.com and use the promo code GRANTPAR20 to receive a 20% discount at checkout. Act now to take your mental game to the next level. What would more wins, higher productivity, or quicker recovery mean for you? NeuroPeak Pro optimizes human performance by working to promote balance within the autonomic nervous system. Used by the world's elite athletes, this training program is now available to you at home. Cutting-edge neuroscience and technology allows you to strengthen your brain remotely, anytime, anywhere. Schedule your evaluation and get started with your brain training today. Visit NeuroPeak Pro and receive a 10% discount by using the promo code GRANTPAR. Hey, Fran, how are you? Good, Grant. Uh, how are you? Man, I'm doing, I'm doing really good and... I'm really excited for our show today. Uh, I, I'm actually more excited because when we had our pre-call last week, um, just learning more about what you've done throughout your career and the teams you've supported and the things you're, you're doing now, I'm really excited to share everything about you to my to my listeners and just you know understanding your journey as a mental performance coach and and also understanding what you're going to be what you've been doing as far as getting into to research as of late. And, and one of the things we're going to be talking about today, which I think is very interesting, is um, the study of Big C creativity. So there's a lot to talk about in the next 30 minutes, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. Well, thanks, Grant. I uh, appreciate you having me on. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's set the tone of the show, which uh, I always do when it comes to mental toughness. And I know that you and I have both trained people to be mentally tough, and I know that you can draw on tons of different experiences when it comes to um, mental toughness. So when you think of the word or words, mental toughness, what does that mean to you? I guess it would be a person who has resilience, um, who's able to, you know, fight back um, after some adversity to stay on task, even when things are going well, and just persist um, in his attitude of a kind of a rage to master, to, to stay on track, despite, again, whatever may come. Now, when you reflect on your 40-year career and all the athletes that you've worked with, and I know that you can, you can draw from tons of different experiences, but is there, that, is there a specific time you can share with my listeners, like that monumental moment? And I know that you've been at the World Series level and other levels as well, championship levels, but... 
Is there like a moment where you can share where an athlete that you either coached through or that you were just working with on the same team that was mentally tough? Can you share that, that moment? One of the things which I think listeners you know, may be very familiar with was the Yankees in 1996. That was my first year with the Yankees. And uh, in the World Series, we faced the Atlanta Braves, who were widely thought to be um, the best team in baseball and by far maybe the best team of the decade, the best, you know, ever. And there were articles in the newspapers about how they would face up to the, you know, the 29 Yankees, Ruth and Gehrig and those guys. And they did have an awesome pitching staff. So anyway, we uh, faced them in New York the first two games and got killed. Um, which means then we're going to Atlanta off day and then we would play them three down there. And, you know, most experts had us not coming back to New York, um, but they forgot to check with us. And, you know, what I, what I saw was, you know, players just firming up and continuing to trust what they were doing both in training, you know, the leadership of Joe Torrey and the other coaches was just awesome. It was like very calm. That would be something that characterized, you know, every Torrey team is that he made sure that he took care of players and put them in situations to succeed. In any case, we just reminded the players that we – you know, that the Braves were, in spite of their daunting pitching staff, they weren't facing the 29 Yankees. They were facing us. Mm. And we proceeded to take the next four games and win the World Series for the first time in 18 years. And you just, you know, by each person's behavior, there was less attention to, you know, things like that, you know, cute stories about whether Ruth and Gehrig could hit Maddox and Smoltz and Glavin and all the other great pitchers that they had, our players just, you know, dug in, put their heads down and didn't, um, you know, let the situation overwhelm them. Um, They were just very much focused on the task at hand, which, you know, one pitch at a time kind of thing. Um, We got, way behind in the uh, game four, which would have been tragic if we lost. And Jim Layritz pinch hitting he wasn't the greatest hitter, but he believed in himself. He came in to face a hundred mile an hour throwing rollers and hit a, I think a three run homer to tie the score. And then we went on to beat them, which was critical. And because it was game four and if we had lost that we had been down three to one just the way the players David Cohn coming back from an injury um, all the difficult training that he had to go through just to just to get himself in there um, just every player you know if you listed the heroes of that World Series, people wouldn't know them now because they weren't, you know, the most notable players. 
They were just people filling a job and doing it extremely well. Mm-hmm. And they had the belief of the entire team. So I would say that's a team level um, illustration of mental toughness. Just, you know, not becoming overwhelmed by, you know, the odds and, you know, the obvious challenges um, and just continuing their training and um, creating the right um, team environment to, you know, optimize the skills that the players had. Mm. And do you think, you know, when when you think about the World Series, you know, NBA uh, Finals, um, Super Bowl, you know, there's a lot of hype around those games. And and I know Pete Carroll, uh, you know, he's one of the coaches that I've read and, and followed. You know, when they were playing in the Super Bowl uh, the last couple of times, you know, he had he'd gotten the the organization to think about it's just another game. It's it's this you know it's whatever meaning you want to make it, but it's just another game. Do you think from a mental a mental toughness standpoint? Because it can get you know it can be easily you can get connected to the hype real quick if you've never been there before. But do you think that Joe Torre kind of instilled that it's just another game and not to get really uh, distracted by you know the hype of the World Series? Among good leaders, there's um, a reality testing. So I would say um, I, I understand the um, the anecdote, um, but it's not just another game, and everyone knows that. Mm. Um, on the other hand, you know what your job remains the same. What you do, and that uh, you know micro focus enables you to stay focused on the things that make it work for you. So working with so many great leaders, I've seen that sort of behavior, very honest, you know, this is, this is a critical thing for us and you know, we have to go out and do our best. Let's not become overwhelmed by, you know, the party going on around us. Let's focus on our, our work. Know, train the same way we always have and just you know believe in what you what you do it, it shouldn't be different it, you know we're still facing a you know as i said a daunting opposition but you know you know how to lay off high fastballs and how to you know get your timing down and how to move runners and you know all the little things you know have to have those team level kind of um, keys um, for us and with the Yankees it was very much about the game that Joe Torre invented which was the the six inning game if we were ahead in the sixth inning we went mm-hmm. and so it kind of took some pressure off players we had an awesome bullpen including Mariano Rivera, best ever, and um, but also other, you know, pitchers who who came in and did a job, notably uh, Mike Stanton and um, Graham Lloyd and well, so many others uh, over the seven years that I was with them, people who could come in and do a do a job, and people who had the trust from Tory and. You know, again, he put them in situations where he knew they could succeed. And knowing that, 
players were emboldened and you know believed in their their skills and so uh, that scenario usually played out when when we got ahead it was game over it was mariano's nickname game over <laughs> given to him by cal ripkin i think after his, in everyone's frustrations at how to hit a cutter so yeah i think um you know it's it's complicated but just to be honest about what you're facing not to try to minimize it because that results in some mistrust obviously looking around you're which you try not to do a whole lot of during the world series right. but you're reminded this is this is big you know absolutely I kind of want to tap into your motivation in, in this field of sports psychology. You know, when you started, you know, 40 years ago into this field, it was, you know, it's, you know, these, these trainings and strategies and concepts have been around for a long time, but you started, you came into the field when things were just starting to get new in major league baseball and sports. And, you know, when you started your career, like what was the motivation to pursue a career in sports psychology? Well, it never really was a goal of mine. It sort of happened as a result of you know, having friends who were competing at the highest levels. And then through sort of word of mouth, you know, their success kind of influenced others who, who didn't know me. But, you know, growing up as an athlete, you, you know, I had hoped to play professional football. And I always felt I was good enough in my college career sort of supported that and then I got hurt and um, it was minor league professional football for me but I played baseball growing up and I wrestled and I played football so it was kind of a it was a lifestyle thing um, combining the neuroscience with you know the games um, was fun and continues to be and then they're, they're just the ethical code that a psychologist tries to live by and that is you know so much tied to the the idea of helping others and doing no harm um and you know trying to relate to that player's situation and give him the benefit of you know whatever knowledge you have whatever you know wisdom you've picked up from others, whether it's sort of race memory, you know, telling stories about, you know, what Babe Ruth did or, you know, there, there are a variety of skills and I wouldn't leave out the whole neuroscience of it. I was appointed to a committee for the National Academy of Sciences to study, you know, learning memory and training because the military back in 87 or 8 maybe recognized that that training was going to have to change because of the you know the differences that they anticipated um, occurring with the military that is you know um, wars had always been fought in a certain way you know massive um, movements of troops and lots and lots of infantry and you know politicians and and 
experts in, in military recognized that, you know, the main jobs were going to be do, done by, you know, more of special services, small units that could train for a very specific job, <clears throat> excuse me, go in and do it. And they wanted to <clears throat> make sure that the training that they got was appropriate uh, to maximize the, the abilities of the soldiers. So we uh, undertook a, a wide-scale study involving, you know, site visits to training sites. And then we tried to review every known suggestion that, you know, learning can be enhanced by, you know, this technique or that one, the whole, you know, sort of learning and training field had been, has also changed um, to one where uh, entrepreneurs were responsible for introducing the techniques and those were not, so they never withstood the, the usual uh, uh, procedures for uh, testing efficacy or whether it really works. And uh, we're still in that phase where, you know, a person can say, I've got a technique which will accelerate your learning. And uh, my evidence is such and such a player is, um, he says nice things about this. And he's now hitting, you know, 310 over his career average of 255 or whatever. And, you know, that is not very good evidence. Testimonial evidence is not good. It's one that in sports we've relied upon and it needs to be where you can, you know, things need to be tested in controlled scientific experiments. And so when we looked at the various techniques that were thought to be improving performance, you know, in cognitive tasks. People have to learn foreign languages, for example, in a short period of time. Um, and then all the, the range of sort of athletic, you know, military training. So we looked at, you know, what worked, you know, what, what has, um, we suggested where there ought to be studies because things look promising. But the sad fact was that most of what was introduced, you know, in the I don't know, last half century has not been beneficial to trainees in, in learning the, the job that they have to do. And that's catastrophic when it comes to, you know, the military. You know, that's a life or death situation. Um, you know, if I strike out a couple times, you know, I might put a dent in my income for a while, but... Um, it's not, you know, an earth-shaking kind of a kind of a thing. So, um, I think that was, and that whole institution still exists. There are still scientists who are consulting with the National Academy of Sciences and and the Army Research Institute and and others about. Um, now it's changed to more of a selection the use of neuroscience, the new neuroscience contributions to select for the, you know, optimal kind of personality for this or that job. 
and um, you know, for understanding, you know, stress and and you know what things like. Um, I also worked at NASA for a year, and what we studied there was leadership in hostile environments. A hostile environment being. Um, you know, outer space, which is a very, you know, challenging situation that, you know, with isolation and physical limitations and microgravity and all sorts of, you know, things that could influence a person's performance. We hear, you know, social narratives about the kind of person who succeeds in this or that situation. Every, you know, sports commentator has his opinion about you know, who makes a good closer, who, who, you know, is a good kicker based on personality attributes or, or lack thereof. And it would be good if we got some validation of that rather than, um, you know, my favorite sort of punching bag is the American idea that, you know, players with very high levels of confidence are the ones that succeed at the highest levels and that you have to be selfish in order to to be great and it's just not been my experience nor is it supported by any literature massive studies of quote confidence have shown that it doesn't predict anything and you know we um in consulting for the military and and other scenarios we have focused on particularly negative um, parts of having high confidence you know one is the your your attention obviously is focused on yourself and how to look good you tend to take up more of the praise praise is limited in any situation uh, team situation it also could influence how you you know perform under under pressure and if you think about it, we, we have examples where, like, you do not want a, a, a manager of a nuclear power plant to be that kind of person who is high confidence, you know, maybe lacks the skills. The person who is somewhat like some of our, our leaders um, just, you know, has a, a way of talking about himself that suggests that he's great, suctions up all of the praise or all the good things that are going on. Right. And again, in a team situation, that's never good. But, you know, if you were if you were in the military and, you know, you had to do a job with another person that you trained with, you do not want the guy who says, yeah, this is no problem. You know, we can blow up this ship or whatever. Just leave it to me. You know, it's easy. We, we can swim over there and do this and do that and uh, easy thing. You know, we'll, we'll do it. You want the person actually who was a little bit on edge who, you know, wants to make sure we, you know, have everything covered and uh, who knows the, you know, again, in an honest way, who knows the risks and who can, you know, conquer those things and very specifically rather than the grandiose, yeah, don't worry, you know, I'm great. We'll, we'll do this. We'll, we'll win. Do you think like within, uh, with what you're, you're saying, what about vulnerability? You know, when you say yeah, that person that needs a little bit of edge, 
I'm guessing, you know, in that makeup of confidence, you know, where does, would you say that vulnerability plays a part in that as well? Um, I'm not sure how you, how you mean that. Can you, can you explain it more? Yeah. You know, I, I think when you, when you think of the way that I look at vulnerability, I look at it in, in a couple of different ways. There's, there's vulnerability of, of being vulnerable in a situation with your emotions and your thoughts. And then there's also being vulnerable in the moment um, with your performance or with your play. So regardless if you've, if you're doing well or not, but you know, I'll just put in a situation like where, you know, a basketball player or even a baseball player struck out three times in a row. Um, are they going to step up in the, you know, the fourth of bat and be vulnerable with their play and trust all their work and trust themselves and, and be confident and, and, and act into their confidence in that moment? Or are they going to play a small game, get caught into, you know, the lack of confidence and their past, the last three, you know, at bats and, and allow it to, to affect their confidence. So, you know, do you, do you think that there's a piece of someone being confident that vulnerability plays like being vulnerable in the moment, regardless what the, the, the situation is, they're just, they're being vulnerable and trusting their training to make sure the task gets done. Yeah. See the problem with the uh, sort of old fashioned model is it diverts the player's attention to himself. Hmm. And, you know, there's, I'm sure that you've talked about this before, but there is, you know, there are hundreds of studies now that show that that's not, a, that's the worst place for your attention to go. It needs to be on the task and particularly it needs to be external, you know, focused on, you know, like a golfer seeing the shot, you know, go towards that tree or hit the uh, green and spin left and, you know, stuff like that. Right. And so, that's where it, it really uh, fails to offer any advantage where, where players get their sense of self-efficacy is from their training and their competitive performances. And it's almost like it's a, it's a metric that, you know, certainly someone could say, uh, you know, or give up and say, I can't do it, despite the fact that he's hitting 350 and fail. Um, but, you know, most professionals, you know, avoid that sort of situation. But they have an internalized sense of agency. I can make this happen. So the better concepts, as the scientists have, have shown us, are a sense of agency that is, I can make this happen i can you know hit this shot i can move this runner but rather than that grandiose and and imperfect telling oneself that he's great and he's gonna hit a home run or whatever to to be able to focus again on on what needs to be focused on is so much more important and if you're worried about your legacy and your you know, maintenance of, you know, the idea that you're a great player, whatever it's, it's, you know, not going to work out so well over the, over the long term for you. So, you know, what we've argued is again, a more scientifically documented um, approach. The, at the core of your 
sense of agency and your self-efficacy is your mastery of the task. And so, and that's what leads into, you know, your training. If you're doing something, you know, 90% of the time, then it's likely that you're going to do very well this time at the plate or this with this pitch or whatever. Um, so of course, you can distract yourself and think, you know, all sorts of bad things. But usually those are triggered again by um, a self-consciousness that is not recommended or, you know, the deployment of your attention on your body parts, trying to put, you know, your body parts in a, in a situation to where to hit this, I've got to stay inside the ball and do this. And that's also, you know, not a, a good proposition. Well, then let's, you know, since you are talking about, you know, research and science, uh, let's get into to something I, I, that I'm interested in. I've been doing a little more research on it since uh, I knew I was going to have you on my show. But right now, there's a, I know there's a few different focuses for you and a few different research um, studies that you're, you're putting a lot of time towards. Now, one of them is, is on big C creativity. Can you share with my listeners, like, what is big C creativity and what motivated you to, to dive into this research? Uh, well, going back to um, graduate school, my, one of my mentors at the University of Chicago was Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Some people may know that name because he really uh, advanced the, our understanding of performing under pressure and of the zone experience, um, what he called flow, you know, the ideal state to perform well. And um, he was, you know, a, a number of my professors were, were very interested, Ben Bloom, Jacob Getzels, so many of my professors were, you know, world experts in, in creativity. Uh, and it was something that interested me. Plus, being in the field of sports, I, you know, I was, the culture tells us to do, you know, something, you know, in a very specific way. You, you can't succeed doing it this way. You, you've got to follow the rules that, you know, I, if you want to be a good pitcher, you've got to do this. And, you know, we know that, yes, that might produce, you know, a good player, but we also know that there are exceptions and there are personality types who uh, try to, you know, test the edges of that, who just do things differently um, and who, whose minds work differently. And, you know, that concept became known as divergent thinking, um, where a person can easily move to something else and can also see reasons why that might succeed in our normal course of, you know, conversation and interaction. You know, we talk about things as if, you know, there is one way to do it and it's this way. And then, you know, we fail to take into consideration, the, you know, other successful players or techniques that, you know, uh, also result in, in, in success. 
and so you know creativity certainly is a is a topic that almost everyone has an opinion about and you know there are these you know narratives out there that suggest that you know you have to be a little crazy to be great at you know art um you know at, at being an artist or being a singer or something that involving you know the what or they're called creative arts um and you know that sort of facilitates the idea that you know you you got to be born to do this um or you know you just learn how to think differently and so studies of there have been very few studies really of of um, this type of thing at ucla under the <clears throat> in the medical school there is a tannenbaum center for creativity and um uh, a number of researchers uh, who have devoted their lives to, you know, pulling apart components of creativity and scientifically uh, evaluating the, the, the concepts that are worthy of, you know, study and, you know, documentation. So what we did was study 90 big C creativity. By big C, we mean um you know, truly out there kinds of creative, you know, the Picassos and the, you know, really productive. Einsteins. Yeah, the sure thing guys who are, and women who, are one of the subjects was Gina Davis, who's a brilliant woman and also, you know, multi-talented. Um, it certainly fits the model. Uh, she made the Olympic team and she's also not such a bad actress. Um, <laughs> right. You know, we, so we studied um, these people. We validated their, you know, nomination into the group by, you know, how much they have changed the world uh, in their areas, um, how many products they had, you know, developed, um, and how different those things were from where the field might have been going. Um, and so we did a, a variety of different kinds of functional MRIs and uh, looked at how the brains worked in these people. We did genetic testing and then, you know, a massive battery of neuropsychological and psychological tests to see, you know, whether we could document that, yes, divergent thinking is a, you know, kind of a major component of creativity. And, you know, I would say tentatively, you know, the data support that. The really creative people are easily able to switch their thinking from the way they were thinking before to, you know, a more productive way of going about things. We also documented that there are many different things about how they use their brains. You know, we could see the, the profiles of, of brain activity being different between visual artists, for example, and, and other kinds of highly creative people, how they use their visual systems, you know, better and their memory systems, their cognitive systems. 
we looked at you know the size of the various areas that are specialized for for different functions and um you know there's a we haven't finished analyzing the data yet but i think it may push the field a little bit further in in understanding you know the connection between thought processes and and how to give up on things that aren't working for us and find a you know entirely different and creative path towards towards success you know when when i think of like in sport and again I, i could be a little bit off but when i think of like you know athletes and coaches that that i believe probably represent this big c creativity you know i think of you know uh michael jordan um nick saban uh pete carroll and this can go on um but do you, I don't know if it's fair to ask you the question yet, since you're still looking at the data, but just because someone reaches an elite level that gets into the professional level, the Olympic level, can there people that, that can reach that level of success and performance and not have this type of creativity? Oh, certainly. In fact, I would argue that most don't. Oh, okay. They just follow their you know, rules and strategies you know, carefully, uh, and they, you know, let's face it, they have a lot of luck, you know, they have the right kids come along at, you know, and the right time, and their college team, you know, succeeds, um, they have the right, you know, coaching around them, you know, the, the, what people differ on their opinions of different offensive and defensive strategies, and pretty much, you know, it changes every 10 years or so. Um, so there's a kind of a coach, Vince Lombardi, I would say. There you go. He won and was maybe the best ever, but it was more because he had a, a plan and it followed a philosophy. It was trained in him by, you know, nuns and priests and, you know, the Jesuit sort of tradition of, you know, how to how to work and you know what you know in the jesuit tradition um in fact the first time i ever really read about how visualization might help you is was in the saint ignatius of loyola who was a spanish warrior wrote the foundations of, of the jesuit sect and he had these spiritual exercises that uh, involved visualization, putting things before your eyes, you know, success or failure or, um, you know, your integrity, you know, how you want to be remembered. And it really, I think, formed the foundation, not only of that faith, but, you know, of techniques to succeed. And Lombardi used those things, you know, and, and, argued that you know you have to have faith in this team you have to do the right thing you know sacrifice yourself and it really was very spiritual Um, and you know again down to details of how to to succeed how to um, so that wasn't that creative because he was simply following in the footsteps of so many other coaches that he had had chance to you know coach with and 
you know, he just um, was great at discipline and motivation. Often it was motivation to, you know, avoid punishment. He didn't want to see a mad Vince Lombardi. I would think that success in many sports is more related to just doing that well rather than, you know, finding a, a completely different pathway. Got it. You know, and since since you are, you know, looking at the big C, creativity, uh, is it fair to say, are you looking at the small C, creativity as well, when you're doing these studies? Well, y- yes, certainly, um, when we do these studies. Um, and the differentiation isn't all that. I mean, there isn't one line there that, that where you, you know, trip over to the side. It's, you know, a matter of, again, productivity and how novel your approach is. So many years we've studied expertise and, you know, the role of practice and all that. It saddens me to, you know, remind you and your listeners that our dear friend Anders Ericsson passed away about a month ago very suddenly, and he probably was the, um, you know, the biggest uh, factor and you know the attention that people now give to expertise and the development of and practice and you know the quote ten thousand hour rule which wasn't really his idea but anyway we've we've um, Anders was a collaborator on several studies that I have done and he's greatly missed you know Fran I. Again, there's with your knowledge and what you've gone through and what you have been doing, um, you know, to to talk about 40 years of your career into, you know, 30, 40 minutes is tough. I could do this for hours with you. Um, so I, I just want to thank you for being on my show. Thank you for your time and your energy uh, and sharing your thoughts on the Big C Creativity and in uh, your journey. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Grant. It was fun. 